introduction is uh, always great to introduce Charlie Campbell. We love Charlie Campbell here, and I know he's loved throughout the church, uh, throughout the world. But listen, tonight, Charlie Campbell's gonna be leading you in the Word of God, always thrilling and exciting. Charlie Campbell, what he puts out is over the top. So everybody, give a warm welcome to our good friend, Charlie Campbell. Oh, thank you. Wonderful to be back with you all. Always a blessing to open up God's word with you. Why don't you turn with me to Matthew's gospel, chapter one tonight. Heavenly Father, we're blessed to be here, eager to open up your word together and see what your spirit would have for us. We ask that you would bless this time. We pray that your spirit would minister to our hearts and our minds, that you would encourage us in the faith. We lift up Pastor Jack and his family and pray that you'd bless their time together celebrating Jesus. Lord, we love you. We commit the service to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, I'll Put it on the screen there for you. It says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and not wanting to disgrace her, resolved to put her away secretly to call off the, the wedding. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Verse 24. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Of course, here we have the glorious account by Matthew of what God did when he himself, Emmanuel, God with us came to the earth in the form of a baby on a rescue mission. What kind of rescue mission was it? Verse 21 says Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And that's why he was to be given the name Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrew. For that name literally means Yahweh saves so Jesus was to be given that name, Yeshua, because in Hebrew, that name literally means Yahweh saves. We deserve judgment and condemnation and death for our sins, but our loving, merciful God came to save us from all of that. Amazing. And so every year, 
Millions of Christians all over the world, as you know, celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're not commanded to in the scriptures. We're not required to. We freely choose to out of thankfulness and love. We love our Savior. We love what God did in sending us his son. But of course, not everybody views Christmas the same way Christians do, do they? Your non-believing Christian friends, your atheist coworker, they might enjoy uh, you know, some extra days off at work, maybe exchanging some gifts and that kind of a thing. But many of them think there's no real reason to celebrate Christmas as Jesus' birth. The whole story of a young virgin giving birth to a savior is just a big myth. Not much different than the story about Santa and his elves living at the North Pole. And so the American Atheist Association puts up billboards around the country every Christmas that say things like, you know it's a myth, this season celebrate reason. Or how about this one? Just skip church. It's all fake news. Or how about one more? Go ahead and skip church. Just be good for goodness sake. Happy holidays. But they don't stop there. Atheists and skeptics commonly say if Jesus did exist, his earliest followers certainly did not think he was God. Or they say the story of the virgin birth was plagiarized from ancient religions that were around before Christianity. Or uh, the Christmas accounts in the Bible contain errors. Or the Gospels were written two or three centuries after he was born. So they certainly can't be trusted. Well, in our time together this evening, I'd like to respond to these kinds of objections with the hope that it will encourage you in your faith, that it will stir up a love, a deeper love for Jesus, but that you'll also leave here a little bit better equipped yourself to answer these kinds of objections and criticisms when it comes to Jesus's life. The first objection I'd like to address for a few minutes concerns Jesus's existence Some critics of the Bible say there never was a first Christmas because there never was a Christ. They claim that Jesus was just a clever deception by some deceitful men back in the first century. This claim runs rampant all over the place on the internet. I bumped into this post a while back on Instagram, a popular atheistic account posted this, Jesus never existed. No independent historical account can prove his existence. Zero, zip, zilch, nada, nothing. That post received hundreds of likes. And if you read through the comments, you see people laughing at Christians that they actually believe Jesus was a real person. I wanted to laugh at the person who typed that up. I thought that is so ridiculous to make that claim. And then to see hundreds of people agreeing with it. There's very good historical evidence that Jesus was a real person. Where so? Well, in addition to the 27 documents that tell us about his life in the New Testament and the 39 documents in the Old Testament that told us he was coming, 
there are more than 30 non-biblical sources, sources outside of the Bible, that mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. If you're a note taker, that's a good little fact, I think, to be familiar with. Atheists often think all you have are those four gospels. Well, that's a mistake because there's 27 documents in the New Testament, not just the four gospels. But even if you lay aside the the 27 New Testament documents that tell us about his life, there are more than 30 other historical sources outside of the New Testament that mention Jesus. For example, Flavius Josephus. Josephus was a historian for the Roman Empire in the first century. He mentions more than a dozen individuals talked about in the New Testament, including John the Baptist, Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, and Jesus. Here's a short excerpt from one of his writings. He says, at this time, this would be the first century, there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good and was known to be virtuous, and many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die, and those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them after his crucifixion and that he was alive. A second source outside of the Bible that mentioned Jesus is this man, Cornelius Tacitus. Tacitus lived from about AD 55 to the year 120. He was a Roman historian who lived through the reigns of more than a half dozen Roman emperors. He's been called the greatest historian of ancient Rome, and he mentions Jesus in his work titled Annals. Here's a short excerpt. He says, Christus, the Latin word for Christ, suffered the extreme penalties, referring to Roman crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. So not only does Tacitus mention Jesus, he confirms, like Josephus did, that Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor at the time of Jesus. A third historical source outside of the Bible that mentions Jesus is this collection of writings known as the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is a compilation of Jewish teachings that were passed down from generation to generation amongst the Jews and then finally organized and compiled after the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. Here's an excerpt from the Talmud that mentions Jesus. It's not a friendly reference to him, which we should expect. They're the ones that handed Jesus over to be put to death. But notice what they wrote about him. On the eve of Passover, Yeshu a shortened form of Yeshua, Jesus' name in the Hebrew language, was hanged, put to death on a tree or a cross. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But, Since nothing was brought forward in his favor, allegedly, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. 
so note that not only does the Talmud mention Jesus, it mentions his crucifixion. It mentions the fact that the Jewish religious leaders desired to have Jesus stoned to death, just like John chapter 10 tells us. And notice that it even says Jesus was put to death at the time of a particular feast, the feast of Passover, the very feast John chapter 18 tells us was taking place on the day Jesus was crucified. Friends, non-biblical sources like these not only verify Jesus existed, they corroborate more than a hundred details recorded about Jesus in the New Testament. So it's this kind of historical evidence that has led historians today to conclude Jesus really existed. He was a real person. So with that settled, let's tackle a second challenge critics have raised, and that concerns Jesus' deity. Jesus' deity. Christians have long believed that the baby born to Mary that first Christmas was God incarnate. Centuries before Jesus' birth, the Old Testament had already indicated that the coming Messiah would be God himself. For example, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah said, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty who? Mighty God, Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace. He wasn't referred to as a prophet or an angel. It would be mighty God himself. Jesus was God in the flesh. Emmanuel. Well, of course, atheists and Muslims and Jehovah's Witnesses today and others disagree with us on this. Muslims believe that Jesus was just a man, a prophet of Islam, they say, a prophet of Allah. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will seek to convince you on your porch that Jesus was Michael the Archangel, incarnate. That's what they believe. But the disagreements don't stop there. These critics regularly claim that the earliest Christians never believed Jesus was God. They say that view wasn't embraced until sometime in the fourth century. Well, those who make that claim could not be more mistaken about the matter. The earliest Christians certainly believed Jesus was God. For example, the Apostle Peter, all the way back in the first century, called Jesus our God and Savior in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The Apostle John opened up his gospel in the very first verse by referring to Jesus as God. The Apostle Thomas, one of the twelve, called Jesus my Lord and my God in John chapter 20, verse 28. The Apostle Paul called Jesus our great God and Savior in Titus chapter 2, verse 13. That's just a small sampling of verses in the New Testament that affirm Jesus' deity. But I think it's important to point out to you that these kinds of affirmations of Jesus' deity did not end with the original disciples. And I point this out to you because if you try to share one of these verses with a Jehovah's Witness, they will tell you that you are misinterpreting that verse. That's not what you think it means. 
I mean, it seems pretty plain to us, but they say, well, you're, you're misinterpreting it. Let, you know, let, let us help you out. We'll give you a few magazines and different things. <clears throat> well, they're quite mistaken about the matter because the earliest church fathers in the second and third centuries continued to affirm this very same teaching that Jesus was God in the flesh. Men like Ignatius, Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Irenaeus, and others refer to Jesus over and over again in their writings as God. So there's a strong early Christian witness to this teaching regarding the deity of Christ. But in addition to these Christian witnesses to Jesus' deity, there's also the witness of secular sources outside of the Bible, outside of the church. For example, Pliny the Younger. Who was he? Well, he was the governor of a region by the name of Bithynia. It was a Roman province in northwestern Turkey from about 110 to 113. Well, writing around 112, he described early Christian worship practices to Trajan, the Roman emperor at the time. Here's a short excerpt from his letter to the Roman emperor. I want you to notice who he says the Christians thought Jesus was. Right into Trajan, he says, they, speaking of the Christians, were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day, that this would be Sundays, before it was light, when they sang an anthem to Christ as God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to commit any wicked deeds, but to abstain from all fraud, theft, or adultery, never to break their word or deny a trust when called upon to honor it. And he goes on. So here we have a statement by a governor of a Roman province written around 112, stating that the Christians worshiped Jesus as God. But someone might say, well, Charlie, I mean, maybe Pliny was a Christian who was just seeking to influence Trajan to believe Jesus was God. Well, in response to that, no, Pliny was not a Christian. He goes on to, in this very same letter and his other writings, to tell us that he had Christians tortured and killed. He was not a Christian. He was hostile to Christianity, but he wanted the Roman emperor to know who these people are. They gather together on a fixed day of the week, and they're worshiping this guy, Christ, as God. So we have that as well. So based on these three sources, the writings of the apostles, the writings of the early church fathers, and Pliny the Younger, based on all of that, you can be absolutely certain that the earliest Christians believed Jesus was God. All right, moving along, I'd like to respond to the third challenge critics have raised, and that has to do with whether or not Jesus was a copycat savior. What am I talking about? Well, there's been a popular video out there on YouTube now for several years. I'm sure some of you have bumped into it. I've probably even mentioned it here in the past. It's called Zeitgeist. The video has been viewed by millions of people, unfortunately, and many viewers unaware of the errors in the video have had their confidence in the Gospels turned upside down after watching 30 minutes of this video. The video alleges that the New Testament authors borrowed major details for Jesus' life from earlier sources other religions that are around before the rise of Christianity. 
So it's not uncommon if you're sharing the gospel with someone who has seen this video to hear him say that the whole story about Jesus was plagiarized from ancient Egyptian myths about Horus. Horus is the name of the mythological falcon-headed sky god worshipped in ancient Egypt. And the person who's seen Zeitgeist will often go on to tell you, if they can remember some of the details, that Horus was born to a virgin on December 25th, worshipped by three kings. He was a teacher by age 12. He had 12 disciples. His followers called him the Lamb of God before he was crucified, buried for three days, and then resurrected. Sound familiar? Well, with all these alleged details in common between Horus and Jesus, you can see why so many people, not knowing their Bibles or history very well, buy into the conclusion that this video presents, that the whole gospel story was ripped off from an ancient Egyptian religion and is therefore not to be trusted. That video has wrecked havoc on young people. A lot of them haven't studied world religions. They don't know what's wrong with these kinds of statements. They don't know where to turn for help, and they walk away from the Lord. Our, our ministry has received emails, several emails from heartbroken parents whose young people have stopped going to church after watching this video. Well, that's too bad because everything there on the screen about Horus is fabricated. It's totally false. If a person would take the time to read the Horus entry in maybe just the Encyclopedia Britannica or any published dictionary on ancient religions, he'd quickly discover that Horus was not born to a virgin. The ancient myths say Horus was conceived by his parents, the god Osiris and the goddess Isis. So strike the virgin birth off the list. No plagiarism there. And nowhere do the myths say Horus was born on December 25th. And even if he had been, where in the New Testament do we read of any date associated with the birth of Jesus? Nowhere. We don't know what day Jesus was born on. The December 25th tradition originated after the Gospels were written. In fact, it wasn't until about 336 that the December 25th date became the official date amongst the Christians to celebrate Jesus' birth, and it had nothing to do with what the gospel writers had said. To suggest that the gospel writers lifted the date or borrowed it from an ancient Egyptian religion is ludicrous. Uh, so strike that. The Zeitgeist video also says that Horus was adorned, worshipped by three kings. Did the New Testament authors steal that idea? No, the Bible knows nothing of three kings showing up at Jesus' birth or any time after. Three kings is an idea that occasionally appears on some poorly researched Christmas cards, but not in the Bible. Uh, notice this in the Gospel of Matthew, if you're still open there, chapter 2, verse 1. Matthew is the only gospel writer who mentions this incident, and he says this. He says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, does he say kings? No, he says magi. 
Does he say there were three magi? No, he just says magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. In biblical times, magi were simply known as wise men, not kings. So strike that. The gospel writers surely aren't guilty of plagiarism there. There's also nothing in the ancient myths about Horus becoming a teacher at age 12, so strike that. Nor is there anything about Horus having 12 disciples, so cross that off. And Horus was never crucified. In fact, Horus is not even reported to have died in most of the ancient Egyptian myths. So cross that off. And there's no record of Horus ever being resurrected. So strike that as well. Who made this video? Was it National Geographic or the History Channel? No, it was a guy who walked away from the Lord many years ago named Peter Joseph. He put the whole thing together, narrated it. It sounds like, you know, he sounds like an authoritative narrator who knows what he's talking about. And yet a bunch of us just made up garbage that is misleading people. The same Zeitgeist video that's been misleading people with all the Horus stuff also says that the Bible's account of the virgin birth was borrowed from the ancient religion of Mithraism. Well, again, this is not true. I researched the ancient Persian religion of Mithraism, and none of the ancient myths ever spoke about any kind of virgin birth. The, the myths say that Mithras, the deity worshipped in Mithraism, arose spontaneously from a rock in a cave. Does that sound like a virgin birth to you? To suggest that the gospel writers stole the idea again from Mithraism again, it's just preposterous. As we saw a little earlier in our reading of Matthew's gospel, the virgin birth of the Messiah was not plagiarized from Mithraism. It was actually the fulfillment of a prophecy given in the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, 700 years before Jesus' birth. And many Bible commentators believe the virgin birth of the Messiah was prophesied as far back as Genesis chapter 3, where God seems to indicate that the coming Messiah would be born to a woman apart from a relationship with a man. Pastor Jack mentioned that uh, at the Christmas Eve service just a couple days ago. So you can be confident that Jesus' disciples did not plagiarize any of the details for Jesus' life from these ancient religions. If you'd like some additional help responding to the claims in the Zeitgeist film, and there are several more we don't have time to get into tonight, I would point you to our website, alwaysbeready.com. We've got an alphabetical menu there on our homepage, A to Z. You can go down to the Zs, click on Zeitgeist, and and get a much more in-depth response to the claims made in that video. All right, moving along, there's a fourth challenge critics often bring up around Christmas time, and that concerns alleged errors in the Christmas accounts. For example, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that after Jesus' birth, Joseph was warned in a dream to take Mary and Jesus to Egypt to escape King Herod who sought to kill Jesus. And of course, that's what Joseph did. Matthew goes on to tell us though that after Herod died, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus returned to Israel and settled in the town of Nazareth. You're familiar with that. 
But critics of the Bible compare Matthew's account with Luke's account and think that they have unearthed a legitimate problem. Here's the alleged problem. In Luke's gospel, there is no mention of Herod's threat or Joseph's dream or the escape to Egypt. Luke just tells us that sometime after Jesus' birth, the family returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Well, in his book, God is Not Great, a book I don't recommend, uh, the late well-known atheist Christopher Hitchens said Matthew and Luke's accounts flatly contradict each other because of this. Well, Mr. Hitchens was quite mistaken about the matter. The mistake he and other critics often make is this. They assume a partial report is a false report. They assume a partial report is a false report. There are places in the four gospels where one author leaves out certain details that another author includes. And we should expect to see that. Had the Gospels all said exactly the same thing, they would be discredited on grounds of collusion. I'm glad there's some differences between the Gospels. It was perfectly acceptable in biblical times for a biographer writing an account about a person or an event to include or omit certain details that another biographer would throw in. Or keep out in his rights. We still do that today. When you go to a certain news website and read about a particular event, and then you go to another news website, you're hoping to get some additional details. That's what good reporting looks like. You got to be suspicious of everybody saying the same thing. We don't know anything about that. Of course we do. So that's really all that's going on between the differences here in Luke and Matthew's Gospels. Uh, Luke leaves out the flight to Egypt. Matthew leaves out details about the shepherds coming to see Jesus and Jesus being brought to the temple in Jerusalem. Not a big deal at all. The, the accounts are not contradictory. They are complementary. When read together, they give us a fuller picture of what happened in those days immediately following Jesus' birth. Another alleged problem in the Christmas accounts concerns what happened to the young boys in Bethlehem shortly after Jesus was born. Critics say that the Bible says Herod's soldiers killed all the young boys in Bethlehem. If that really happened, surely Joseph or another historian would have mentioned it. Not necessarily. At the time of Jesus' birth, Bethlehem was a small, obscure village in the middle of nowhere as far as the massive Roman Empire was concerned. The renowned archaeologist and biblical scholar, William F. Albright, estimated that the population of Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth was only about 300 people. It was a small town. If Albright was right about this, then there would have only been about six or seven boys who were two years old or younger when Herod ordered them to be put to death. Well, then it's easy to understand how this might escape the notice of historians living hundreds of miles away. Remember, in the first century, news traveled slowly. There was 
no internet or telephones, radios, none of that. It took a while for news to make it to the other side of the empire. Josephus, who was born about 40 years after the Bethlehem murders, may have never heard of the event. Or perhaps he just decided to leave it out of his antiquities of the Jews. Josephus does tell us that Herod murdered people, including three of his own sons and his wife, her grandfather, his mother-in-law, several uncles, and a couple of cousins. Not the kind of relative you're excited to have over for Christmas dinner. The guy was crazy. You'd have to keep an eye on your family. Well, with that kind of historical information from Josephus, critics should have no difficulty believing Matthew gave us an accurate account about the Bethlehem tragedy. If Herod was willing to kill his own sons, three of them, what would stop him from ordering the killing of other people's sons? Especially if one among them had been prophesied to be a future ruler of the Jews, Jesus All right, let's consider another challenge critics bring up when talking about Jesus, and that concerns Jesus' miracles. One of the reasons Jesus' disciples concluded that the baby born in Bethlehem was God in the flesh was Jesus' miracles. Jesus didn't just claim to be God. Anybody can do that. You could stand up tonight and make the claim. I am God. Not hard to utter those words, right? I mean, the ushers would take you out, but uh, (laughs) not not take you out like kill you, but, you know, take you out outside. (laughs) So, So Jesus backed up his claims by doing things only God can do, like opening the eyes of the blind, uh, healing the lame with a word, Uh, raising the dead back to life. But of course, atheists and other critics of the Bible have a problem with these accounts. They suggest, among other things, that the early Christians just embellished their accounts of Jesus' life with stories about miracles in order to attract more followers. And really, it comes as no surprise that they say this. They are actually forced by their atheistic worldview to deny Jesus' miracles. Not because there's evidence miracles can't occur, but because of their anti-supernatural bias. Their anti-supernatural bias forces them to deny Jesus' miracles. Why is that? Well, because in a universe where no God exists, nothing miraculous can ever occur. There's no God to pull that kind of stuff off. So critics of the Bible, atheists in particular, they come across uh, Jesus' miracles in the New Testament and they say, no way, not possible. These things couldn't have happened. They must be made up. But for those of us who believe in God, we have no difficulty believing Jesus performed miracles. Because if Jesus was the one who spoke the universe and all of life into existence in Genesis chapter 1, then it would be no problem, for example, for him to speak life into a dead man like Lazarus. Jesus is the one who designed the human body and who created the first man from dust. Breathing new life back into Lazarus' body would not be difficult at all for him. 
So our worldview, our Christian theistic worldview doesn't prevent us from believing in miracles before we've even considered the evidence. Unlike atheists, we're free to follow the evidence wherever it points, and we believe there's some pretty compelling evidence Jesus really did perform miracles. Take, for example, the rise of Christianity in Jerusalem. It is an accepted historical fact that the Christian faith, a religion built upon the preaching of the resurrection of its leader, originated in approximately A.D. 32, right in the very city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been publicly crucified and buried. Now, this in itself is a good piece of evidence that Jesus' miracles actually occurred. Why is that? Well, because a message calling people to repent and put their faith in a resurrected, miracle-working Messiah could never have gained any substantial following in Jerusalem if the people had not actually seen Jesus work miracles. The best explanation for the immediate rise of Christianity, followed by its phenomenal growth right in the very city where Jesus was crucified, is that Jesus really did rise from the grave and work miracles. Is it reasonable to suppose that thousands of people within those early days following Jesus' death were actually deceived into believing a man rose from the dead? I don't think so. Think through this with me. I think most of us have seen John F. Kennedy's assassination on TV or the internet. It was a very public death as Jesus' death was very public. Question for you, though. How hard would it have been in the weeks following that tragic event in Texas to convince hundreds of people in the city of Dallas who were there and who saw JFK die that he came back to life after he was buried? Pretty much impossible, right? You might convince a few people, but you'd have an incredibly hard time convincing hundreds of people. Why would it be so difficult? Well, here's why. People didn't rise from the grave in America in the 20th century. And here's something else to note. People didn't rise from the grave in Israel in the first century either. Unless Jesus was involved, like with Lazarus and caused someone out of the tomb. But it wasn't like this was a common occurrence and that people would be so gullible, so easily led to believe that a man conquered death and now would walk among us again. And yet in the days immediately following Jesus's public crucifixion, thousands of Jews who lived there in Jerusalem and who knew with certainty Jesus had died, suddenly converted to Christianity, convinced Jesus rose from the grave. How does one explain this? Well, Luke tells us People had seen Jesus, hundreds of them, with their own eyes. Acts chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And that caused the the numbers in the church to explode. Luke tries to keep count in the book of Acts. It's like 5,000, another 5,000. It's like a mega church. (laughs) In Jerusalem, where everyone knew Jesus was dead days earlier. 
Another line of evidence that Jesus performed miracles is the fact that the early Christians were then willing to endure great hostility telling people about Jesus' miracles. Why would they do that if they were lying? Liars lie to get out of trouble or to gain some type of advantage or benefit. But what the early Christians said about Jesus didn't get them out of trouble or result in any kind of benefit. What these men said and wrote about Jesus got them in trouble. What they received was rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Hardly a list of perks. That, to me, is evidence that these men were telling us the truth about Jesus. But what about number six, the supposed late authorship of the Gospels? It's not uncommon to hear non-Christians say that the Gospels were written down two or three hundred years after Jesus. And if that is the case, they certainly cannot be trustworthy accounts of his life. Well, when pressed for evidence that the Gospels were written down that late, they're never able to offer a shred of evidence that the Gospels were written down that late. And the reason why is because there's no evidence any of the New Testament books were written down two to three hundred years after Jesus. And there's good evidence most of the New Testament was completed before A.D. 70. What evidence do I have in mind? I'll walk you through just a bit of it. How about this? The New Testament is absolutely silent regarding the destruction of the Jewish temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. The destruction of the Jewish temple in A.D. 70 was one of the most significant events in all of Jewish history. Flavius Josephus, who was an eyewitness to the event, says the Roman soldiers destroyed the Jewish temple as well as the entire city of Jerusalem. In the process, Josephus says 1.1 million people died and that the Romans carried away 97,000 people as prisoners. Wow. That is a significant historical event. Well, the silence of the New Testament authors regarding this event strongly suggests their writings were completed prior to this event. Let's imagine you go over to a friend's house this week, maybe to watch a football game. And you're sitting there on their comfy couch waiting for some other friends to show up, digging into your chips and guacamole, and you, you notice a book there on the coffee table that addresses the history of New York City. And so having a few minutes to spare, you flip through the book. And by the time you get to the end, you realize there was not a single reference to the destruction of the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. And you close the book. Question for you. Could you confidently assume the book had to have been published prior to that infamous date? with absolute certainty. There's no way a book addressing the events in New York City, the history of that city, would leave out that event if it was published after 9-11. Well, we think the same is true with the New Testament. Its silence regarding the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is a strong indicator that the New Testament was largely completed prior to that day. 
another indicator that most of the New Testament was finished prior to AD 70, centers around the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul. We know from the writings of the early church fathers that Paul was put to death around AD 64 and Peter about a year later in AD 65. And though the deaths of other prominent Christians are mentioned in the New Testament, the deaths of these two prominent apostles are not mentioned anywhere. Not one verse. Are you telling me that Luke would write about Stephen's death and James' death, but, but not Paul's or Peter's? No, he didn't mention their deaths because they were still alive when he completed the book of Acts. But Luke mentions at the beginning of the book of Acts that it was his second writing. He had already completed his gospel. So that's a clue as to the timing of when those writings were completed. Now, I say that the New Testament was largely completed before AD 70 because we know with certainty that the book of Revelation was penned around AD 95 by the Apostle John. So someone might say, well, why didn't the book of Revelation then mention the destruction of Jerusalem if it was written on the other side of it? Well, a simple answer is the book of Revelation is not about past events. It's about future events. It wouldn't fit contextually to, to mention that with what John was writing about. All right, let's tackle one last challenge critics bring up when talking about Jesus, and that concerns other alleged gospels. Other alleged gospels. Critics of Christianity commonly say that we really can't know the truth about Jesus because the early Christians purposely left other writings, other gospels about Jesus out of the Bible. What should we think about that challenge? There were writings floating around in the centuries following Jesus' life that do mention Jesus and that were left out of the New Testament. So that does leave us with the question, why did Christians leave those writings out of the Bible? Well, the short answer is this. They never belonged in the Bible. The Bible's not just a compilation of anyone who wants to write anything about Jesus and, hey, we'll throw it in. It's a collection of 66 Holy Spirit-inspired writings about specific things God wants to reveal to humanity. When the so-called Gospel of Thomas and other Gospels purportedly written by Judas, Philip, and Mary Magdalene started appearing on the scene long after these persons died, Christians recognized them for what they were, pseudo-Gospels that were uninspired, spurious writings. They realized these, these writings weren't written by Thomas and the others, but by false teachers who attached the disciples' names to their writings, seeking to influence Christians with their unbiblical and even heretical ideas. Scholars have determined that every one of these so-called gospels that were left out of the New Testament originated in the second or third century AD, long after Jesus Thomas, Mary Magdalene, Philip, and Judas walked the earth. So that was strike one against their inclusion. What is that strike? Their late arrival. They arrived way too late to be genuine writings by these persons. Strike two 
was the internal evidence, evidence within the writings that gave them away as fakes. For example, consider these outlandish words that the Gospel of Thomas seeks to put into the mouths of Peter and Jesus. I'll put it on the screen for you. Peter supposedly says to Jesus and the disciples, make Mary leave us for females don't deserve life. Let's pause there for a moment. Can you imagine if the gospel of Thomas was in the New Testament today? And this just happens to be the text where Jack's landing in his verse by verse teaching through the New Testament on Mother's Day weekend. Make Mary leave us for females don't deserve life. Does that sound like anything Peter ever said? How outrageous is that? But it gets worse. You think that's bad? I mean, that's atrocious. It gets even worse. Jesus says, supposedly, look, I will guide her to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males for every female who makes herself male will enter the domain of heaven. How outrageous is that? You know, anytime I give this presentation in a church and I put up these kinds of passages from these different gospels, you hear everyone laughing, mumbling, you know, ooing and aahing, like, oh my goodness, it's repulsive, the thing. Well, how do you think the early church responded? The same way. They had discernment. Let me put up a couple more of these just to give you some flavor here for the gospel of Thomas. How about this one? Jesus said to them, if you fast, you will bring sin upon yourselves. And if you pray, you will be condemned. And if you give to charity, you will harm your spirits. <laughs> Think that might be a heretic? <laughs> Trying to tell God's people, don't pray. God doesn't like prayer. And don't be generous with the poor and don't fast. All of that's con you know, condemnable, sinful. Well, the early church said, no, Jesus himself taught us to pray. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, he modeled prayer for us. He told us to be generous with the poor. He encouraged fasting. How about one more? This is from the Gospel of Thomas. Jesus said, it, it self-destructs right there on the next word. Just like, <laughs> lucky. <laughs> lucky? Where have you ever seen the word lucky in the Bible? It's like, get out your four-leaf clover. Your rabbit's foot. <laughs> Jesus says, supposedly, lucky is the lion that the human will eat so that the lion becomes human. And foul is the human that the lion will eat and the lion still will become human. What in the world? Lions can become humans. I don't know. It's, that's some bizarre stuff. It's outrageous. But that's the Gospel of Thomas. It was these kinds of sayings in these alleged gospels that gave them away as fakes. The Christians who were widely familiar in the second and third centuries with the genuine teachings of Jesus and the apostles knew that these were not the kinds of things Jesus or the disciples ever taught. So this so-called gospel and some others were purposely left out of the Bible and we can be thankful that the Christians had the discernment 
to leave them out. Friends, if you've placed your faith in the genuine Jesus, the Jesus revealed to us in the four authentic gospels, the Jesus born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, you have not followed cleverly devised myths and fables. As atheists and skeptics say, there's good evidence that Jesus was a real person and that the gospels are trustworthy records of his life. And this is wonderful news because the four authentic gospels contain the greatest news the world could ever hear. The news that 2,000 years ago, God himself came to the earth in the person of Jesus on a mission to rescue you from the consequences of your sin. He accomplished that by living a sinless life and then dying on that cruel wooden Roman cross in your place. Think of that. On the cross, God suffered the condemnation and judgment you deserve for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be rescued from spending eternity in hell and be brought back into a right relationship with your maker. He rose from the grave, though, three days later. and Today, he offers you and the rest of humanity the forgiveness of sins, peace with God, and the free gift of everlasting life. That is some great news. Everlasting life? Peace with God? I don't know what you got for Christmas a couple days ago, but what God offers you is way better. Everlasting life. You can't put a price tag on that. And it's offered to you, the Bible says over and over again, it refers to it as a free gift. How do you lay hold of that gift? Jesus said, whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. God's done all the work. He just wants you now to place your faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. And you can do that tonight. If you need to get right with God, he's a prayer away. I would encourage you to call out to him before you even walk out of the doors of this place and just pray something like, God, thank you. Thank you for loving me. Please forgive me for my sins. I renounce them and turn away from them. And I trust in Jesus Christ to save me. Come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior. If you'll call out to God like that, the Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So don't put it off. For the rest of you who have already done that, as I know most of you have, I encourage you, be looking for people this week that you can introduce Jesus to. He is the greatest gift a person could ever receive. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, God, for this time in your word and time to come together tonight, Christmas week, and reflect on what Jesus did in coming to the earth to make a way of salvation possible for us. And God, we're thankful that there are answers to these objections and criticisms that atheists and skeptics bring up. We haven't followed after cleverly devised fables and myths. There's good evidence that Jesus really existed and died on a Roman cross under the reign of Pontius Pilate, but then rose again from the grave three days later. So God, we want to live for you. We love you. We're thankful for all that you've accomplished through the birth of our Savior. 
We do pray, God, that you would give us a renewed concern for those who are perishing. We work with people. We live near people. We have family members who don't yet know you in a personal saving way. God, we pray that you would use us in their lives to get the gospel out to them. And Lord, we do pray that you would convict them of their sin, help them to see their need for a savior, and that you would lead them into a relationship with your son. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their lives to that end. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. To my right, through the doors over here, there are some people that would love to pray with you. If you want to get right with God, you can go and talk to them if you'd like. They'll give you a Bible. They'll pray with you, answer any questions that you have. But thank you for letting me share with you tonight. We got off to a rough start there with the technology, but we recovered, and it was a joy to open up God's word with you. We'll see you in the new year. God bless you.